Ready to go, Cal? I'm ready. You're ready. Excellent, guys. Uh, welcome to the AOR Live podcast. Um, I'm here today talking to Kel. Kelly Glaser has been coaching parkour since 2014, mostly in Scotland, her favourite place in the universe, and has been arguing with Hedge about inclusivity and diversity in some form or the other for even longer than that. She moved back to Melbourne in 2016 and now works with Melbourne in Motion outside parkour. Kel's a visual artist with an MFA from the Glasgow School of Art. She doesn't like shoes and recently developed an interest in throwing heavy things around. Kel, I really like starting these interviews with a bit of history, talking about your journey into parkour. I'm obviously familiar with some bits of your journey, but for the audience, do you want to tell them a little bit about your earliest memories of parkour in the early days of the Glasgow parkour scene? Sure, absolutely. Um, I mean, the first thing I want to say is that I miss it desperately, and hello to everybody in Scotland. I miss you. Um, <laughs> and I moved to Glasgow um, after an artist residency in France uh, a, a long time ago, I basically just decided that I didn't want to live in Melbourne anymore. I'd done a bit of um, a bit of parkour in Melbourne as a way to kind of overcome various fears I had after a, a pretty traumatic shoulder injury. Um, and I joined in classes that were run by Glasgow Parkour Coaching, as well as joining in the Glasgow Parkour Girls community uh, and then eventually moving on to helping organize and then becoming a coach with Glasgow Parkour Coaching. Um, so basically I owe uh, everything I am as a coach to people like Chris Grant, you, uh, Nina Ballantyne, Andy Rupp, Scott Houston, David Banks, whoever I'm forgetting. Um, it really was how I uh, came to become confident as a, I suppose, a leader and a coach and how I learned a lot about um, myself. I think a lot of people who have lived in cities that weren't where they grew up, um, it really does help shape you as a person. And Glasgow particularly, I think there's something special about Scotland. A lot of people think there's something special about um, Scotland and being able to join a small community that was led by people who, you know, I agree with a lot of, disagree with, with some, but it really did help uh, me become who I am. And so that's why I miss Glasgow, I think. That's a really lovely story. But your first right. classes were you actually in... It's okay, we understand. We'll never be Glasgow. <laughs> um, but it's okay, because we're not trying to be Glasgow. It's one of the, it's one of the really complicated parts <laughs> exactly. of the relationship, which is like, we know we'll never be Glasgow, but we also don't want to be Glasgow. So it's, it's sort of like a, a love-hate-hate-hate mm -hmm. relationship in a way. Um, but your actual first yeah. class then was in there Melbourne. There is a similar thing. It was, yeah. I, um, I started out sort of my, my origin myth, I guess, was that I had dislocated my shoulder quite badly um, a long, long time ago, um, being silly. <laughs> and um, eventually that, and I was told at the time that if I did it again, I'd need surgery. And at the time that became this really uh, dark cloud of sort of fear that um, I would have to spend time in surgery and recovery. And it eventually meant that I had stopped doing things that were physical in any way, because I thought that I would, I would 
have to face this fear and that became really boring uh living in fear all the time so basically the reason that I started parkour was because fear had become a really big part of my life and I wanted a way to address that mm-hmm. um and I tried a lot of things and parkour was the one that stuck that's kind of cool because a lot of people tell that story the other way around which is they got into parkour and discovered that it was a tool for facing fears you actually went looking for something that helped you face fears and found parkour. Yep. Yep. Um, exactly. It started with like running and, and regular things and um, stumbled across parkour for that explicit reason, basically. Yeah. All right. So we're going to be starting, we're going to be talking about um, marginalized communities a lot today. And when trying to sit down and build interviews, uh, build questions for this interview, um, I kind of couldn't help but be conscious of the fact that what we're going to be talking about is probably going to get a little bit conflated with issues that are happening in the world right now, both in terms of COVID and the lockdown, the very distinct change in how we view public spaces, as well as the protests in the US right now that I think we can all agree, agree clearly show the brutal reality that different access to public space exists for different communities and groups. And so... Absolutely. What I, I don't want to kind of get into global geopolitics, but I do want to kind of start there. So a public space is basically a space that can be used by anyone. So why is it that some marginalized groups struggle to access public spaces in the same way as more privileged groups? Right, that's, that's an excellent question. And it is different for every uh, marginalized group and every individual within those groups. Um, And one of the simplest ways is that we know a lot of these spaces are not designed for equal access and are actually designed in a way that's hostile to certain people accessing spaces. And so some of that will be, um, you know, anti-homeless hostile architecture. Some of it will be more subtle. Um, And so, when people can't access these spaces that aren't designed for them, uh, what that actually means is not only that the spaces aren't designed for purposes that suit them, so you can then think about our spaces, somewhere you can bring kids if you need to care for kids, our spaces that that you can literally access, uh, do you have the public transport uh, to get there and back? Um, But then you can also think about what happens within those spaces, whose behaviour is more heavily policed, either literally and, as you said, and we've seen brutally by the police as agents of the state, um, or in a, policed in a more invisible way in terms of uh, social uh, regard from others, as well as, you know, literally being told you're too old to be doing that, you're too um, frail or fragile to be doing that, you shouldn't be doing that. So um, <laughs> marginalised groups, well, they can literally step into public spaces, the way that their behaviour is received by others often means that they have to take on a lot of emotional labour to exist, to simply exist in that space. And mm-hmm. that means if it's hard, if it's difficult, if you have to put on a, a game face every time you go out, often you just start avoiding those spaces and that's completely understandable. Yeah. Um, in, so one in of practical- the... Sorry. 
One of the uh, the ways that I was talking with you a little bit before we started that I like thinking about this idea is in terms of um, some postmodernist uh, philosophy, which I promised our viewers would get into today, which is the idea of a, a negative and a positive freedom. So yeah. uh, negative freedom being the idea that um, you have the you actually have the ability to access the space. If you didn't have the negative ability to access the space, it'd be you were physically banned from being in that space. So that'd be like no woman allowed sort of thing. Um, whereas a, pos a positive freedom is the ability to get there, having enough money to get the train there. Or when you move into that space, the police don't approach you and stop you. And so one of the things that we often talk about is people go, oh, but people are equal. And we see... Um, people accessing the space they can they have the negative freedom to get into the space but actually their experience of that space the positive freedoms which are almost invisible to the privileged um stop exactly. them from accessing that space yeah 100 percent. and so uh, it's really important to believe people basically when they say um i have a different experience of that space to you and this is what you, you can butt heads up against a lot when you're working doing the work to develop inclusive spaces is you'll tell someone uh we need a space that is different to the space that exists because not everyone feels the same way within uh say a jam or whatever mm -hmm. and the people will say well what do you mean all of us are really welcoming and all you have to do is show up and it's you'll find out it's inclusive um and what that doesn't take into account is the work um, and the worry that some people can have in just turning up, mm -hmm. um, in, in not knowing whether that's going to be a space that is welcoming um, and is uh, as inclusive as people claim it is. Yeah, for instance, you could be, you could have had, if you've had a lot of negative experiences of turning up to spaces that say they're inclusive before, what is to make you think that this one will be any different? And so what I think, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, people who are marginalized in those experiences then go looking for is spaces that are signposted for them that speak in a language that's much more about who they are, which is this idea of creating spaces for marginalized groups. So do you want to maybe tell us a little bit about how you create spaces for marginalized groups, specifically in parkour, and a few different examples of marginalized group spaces that have been created? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so the most kind of visible um, outpouring of that idea is classes, jams, or events that are, as you said, signposted for a particular audience. So I work with uh, women of Melbourne parkour as well, and with uh, previously with Glasgow parkour girls and similar groups in Edinburgh. Um, and that was about making a space uh, that was in every um, uh, signpost towards it was centering the experiences of women and um, we hope non-binary people as well women is is not the exact word but it's the best one that we have and um, and in that case what it means is those that are curious about parkour and basically we want everyone who's even a little bit curious about parkour to be able to come and have a go um, those that are curious but may have found uh previous gym classes PE classes to not be welcoming for them they've they've just switched off one little worry and that's that's all that that um specialized 
class or event does. It's about switching off one worry to make a space a little bit more safe and welcoming. And I've done that with various other groups uh, with Melbourne in Motion. We've run classes for uh, gender diverse kids. We've uh, women in of Melbourne Parkour have won classes for mothers and um, people who have to care for small children. And so that's what those spaces, particularly for marginalized people are for. It's for uh, building a welcoming space that takes away the need for people to um, overcome one more obstacle before they get to their parkour class. And it's mm -hmm. not about boys are smelly, you know? Like, mm -hmm. And uh, one of the um, things that um, I find very interesting about the process of um, trying to reach out to um, groups is that the, the more different their life experiences are from my own, the more difficult and laborious a process it can be because this can be very difficult. You have to put yourself in the mindset of someone else. I often find that the language, I'm, I'm told the language I'm using, the words I'm using turn people off and you're sitting there going, but this is just how I speak, this is who I am. And learning to exactly. be diverse and change and be inclusive is actually, it's a, a very long learning process. I don't think anyone necessarily, anyone necessarily can just be more inclusive. That idea of like, I'm a more inclusive person. Instead, it's I'm learning how to be more inclusive to this group and then this group and then this group. Exactly. And, and you're absolutely right. That's, that's where a lot of people um, probably stop in, in how they think about being inclusive is that I am just not racist or I am just not a misogynist. And um, that is not enough. You have to make that clear in what in your actions and you also have to trust people when they tell you or when they demonstrate that maybe you're, you're not being uh not racist enough or you have been um or the spaces that you're providing maybe need some work so inclusivity is a process and not one that anybody ever finishes um which is hard you know we can all admit that it's hard that's it's difficult yeah um and i think it's it's a very interesting uh, mindset to get into because once you are more in the habit and realize um i'm doing the best i can i need to do better it also and one of the things that i really enjoy about it is it it pushes you to engage with people who are different from you which then gets you different life experiences which then you learn more from which then means you can reach more people and as your community gets more yeah. diverse it becomes it develops the ability to become even more diverse yeah um and if you want exactly to hear other voices and other opinions and have a diverse complicated world it's a it's a very slow sometimes but wonderful experience that is just a sort of hey my community is diverse i get to hear lots of different ideas yeah totally and it can be confronting at times and it's well worth um it's well worth acknowledging that because mm -hmm. a lot of people maybe they'll feel that if a community or a person says to them, I think your, uh, your services could be more inclusive. Sometimes, especially what like um, enlightened white people brains tend to hear is that person's calling me a racist or that person's calling me homophobic. And if you stop there and um, don't engage with what those people are actually saying, you lose a lot of opportunities to learn, as you've said. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and of course, it's just a habit we need to build out of that's built into tribalism and the way our brains think. So the better we can get at it, the more interesting it is. Um, Absolutely. One thing that interests me about your approach with this regard is that classically, um, your safe space for your marginalized group is necessarily private. It's not in the public eye. It's easier to access because it's um, not somewhere where you're going to necessarily have to deal with the complexities of public space. Mm. And yet you are an advocate for taking those um, safe spaces for marginalized groups and pulling them into public spaces. Do you want to talk to me a little bit about why you make those choices and what the pros and cons are and how it works out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, to start, I guess, beginning with, it was purely because we had to. Um, and I mean, maybe the whole trajectory would be different if, if we had a gym or um, whatnot. Um, I think I've been lucky in experiencing this in Glasgow and in Melbourne, uh, where those are both cities that are, I, I found to be quite easy to do that in. Um, not found a lot of pushback and not experienced much. I mean, that's relative. We have experienced harassment and, and whatnot in public space, but not experienced a huge amount. So I think everybody's approach to doing this will be different according to their city. As we know with all parkour coaching is very much um, influenced by the conditions of the city that you're in. Mm -hmm. um, Glasgow, Melbourne, Edinburgh, it's all been uh, quite straightforward to create these spaces in, uh, in public. Um, I think what I'd like to sort of scoot sideways towards is actually social media, <laughs> okay. which every, everybody hates, right? Um, but I think I hate social media, but I have to do it a lot as you know, anyone who's running a business or a group will find. Um, everyone hates it, but I think what is worth keeping in mind is that when, you've, when you're making a safe space or a um, inclusive space, effectively like 80 or 90% of the work is before anybody shows up. Um, what you can do uh, is use social media, use your, you know, even your branding and, your, um, and whatever outward expression you have to the world. It, use that to emphasize your values um, and emphasize who's welcome in any particular, who's welcome and who's at the center of any particular event. So in answering Can I just how, pause you a second and can you just yeah. expand that little point? Because that's a very important thing you just tossed in there. So who is welcome and who is at the center? Do you want to break that down for our audience? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So um, I've, as I said, worked with a number, I'll, I'll use a concrete example here, worked with a number of um, groups that are centered around women and non-binary people. And when we do that, when we say this is a Women of Melbourne Parkour training session, what a lot of people will, what a lot of white boys will say is why am I not allowed or why are you doing this without me in mind? And we don't actually run um, gender segregated uh, 
sessions. We run sessions that have women at the center and where women's needs are the priority. Um, and what that means in practice is we don't get any men coming um, just because they see the, see the name um, and mm -hmm. assume it is exclusive, which is completely understandable. Um, but what that means is that when we run a session, it's going to be uh, based around, I mean, it's, it's, you know, good coaching principles based around uh, who turns up, what those people's particular fears are. And when we have a group that's based around uh, women's needs, some of them are in common. Um, is the safe space? Is the space safe? Um, will I be uh, welcomed? Will I be strong or fast enough? All of those questions we can just toss aside because we've made a space that is mm -hmm. um, centered around that already being the case for, for the people who turn up. Yeah, so it's um, what I what. So rather than saying this is a space for this person, this person isn't allowed, your actual advertising is saying this is a space for this type of person. Um, it's sort of interesting because, yeah, again, if you are, aren't used to spaces being built not for you, which mm. is what the privileged position is, you might hear that as you are not welcome. But actually, it's just that, hey, we're not thinking about you right now. Exactly. Um, so yeah. maybe it's and it's quite difficult because you have to you sometimes have to fight against privilege when building marginalized spaces because people like we I remember when we when you offered off your own back to come through to Edinburgh to run Parker classes for women we got pushback from some very enlightened people in our community who said well yeah. hold on I feel it's wrong to break up and split up communities um, and of course that idea of like how do you Having done it through the approach of saying no men allowed, you've now switched to this is focused on women. Is that working better for you? Are you getting less pushback or are you still getting pushback when you create it with those words in mind? Yeah, I think we have a, we have a lot of trouble with um, people understanding that. Um, people still think it's uh, no men allowed. Uh, and the, But the people that we do come, like Danny Lumsden, um, comes to warm sessions all the time, um, and uh, not that anymore. Me, we but... stole him. He's back now. We stole him back. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that means that when when people come, they already know that there's there's sort of rules of engagement, basically. Um, that uh, you won't. I don't want to say you won't be allowed, but that the understanding is that it's not um, business as usual. Yeah, it's, yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, and yeah, when explaining that to people who either don't understand or willfully don't understand what privilege is, um, it can be difficult because they'll literally say, "We would never, we would never exclude you in such a." Um, explicit way yeah. but that's not taking into account the implicit um exclusions that people face yeah so if we bring it back to that concept we were talking about earlier then i'm going to continue pinning things to uh you've built the positive freedoms around a certain group of people uh and so what, what you're arguing here i think 
I think someone could argue so differently, is that you're not restricting anyone's negative freedoms. You're not telling them they can't be there, but the positive freedoms are now built around a marginalized group. And therefore, uh, privileged people will go, hold on, wait a minute, my, I have lost freedom here, is the philosophy, <laughs> positive freedom. Yeah. And so you kind of have to go, okay, yes, let's look at this and what our purposes and what our outcomes are. So of course you can see yeah. why that might create um, some level of pushback, but we're going to talk about how we go and deal with that in a minute. But I want to kind of, um, I want to come back to actually a very common critique of this sort of style of building uh, spaces and communities, which is that mm -hmm. doing this can end up being quite fractal in nature, creating closed boxes for individual groups and further isolating and separating them when actually we want to highlight their similarities. So in reality, how much of that is actually a risk and a real problem and how do you manage it? Uh, or is it something which is full, full of theory and not actually happening in practice? Mm. I think what I'd like to start with there um, is why I think that's a kind of misunderstanding of what safe spaces are. And what I'd like to, to play with or, you know, bring to light is that people make safe spaces for themselves all the time. Um, there's a lot of pushback just against using the word or the term safe space, um, lol, snowflakes, blah, blah, blah. But people uh, are constantly making spaces for themselves in which they feel safe and in which they can thrive. So your friend groups, um, your jam community, your um, uh you know, chess club, whatever you do, uh, our spaces and online spaces as well, the ones that you engage with uh, the most are likely to be ones that are safe for you. Um, mm -hmm. The thing is, you haven't gone around saying, I'm going to make a hedge safe space or I'm going to make a, um, <laughs> you know, you haven't used those explicit terms because you don't have to. No milk, no milk allowed. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so you haven't used uh, explicit terms because you don't have to, because um, to a certain extent, if you have privilege, you can assume that most spaces are going to be safe for you. Um, when people go around and make safe spaces for, uh, for women, for carers, for queer people, um, they do so because there's a, there's a need for that space and they want to um, save time, save, um, save pain by doing it explicitly and making sure that um, that the people who need that space are the ones that are accessing it. So um, when people say that creating, uh, you know, somewhat segregated communities just enforces segregation in, in the larger community, I don't think that takes into account the way that people generate their own safe spaces. Um, and the way that all communities are a kind of cluster of smaller communities more or less stably mm -hmm. taped together. Um, okay. And so if the, you take away... Um, um, yeah, if you if take I could, away... I can just push back on that a little bit, though, um, yeah. because I don't necessarily disagree with you, but, um, for instance, uh, what is the experience of... Um, the woman who turns up who wants to go to the parkour classes and sees oh this is a female this is a female only class and suddenly feels like she's not allowed to visit this one 
and so we're sort of like pushing people towards uh, segregated spaces sometimes yeah or that idea of just how it presents oh that's the woman's space yeah absolutely and that can that can be a real problem um and not everybody wants not everybody in any given marginalized community wants their first step or any of their steps to be within safe spaces and that's that has to be absolutely um uh, respected so ideally you want sort of the general spaces to be as inclusive as possible as well as i mean you could think about it kind of like a, a central node that has several inputs feeding it in i've, I've made it gross and weird but um <laughs> you want <laughs> no no the scientist in me loves this tell me about nodes Let's but talk you about machines. Let's make the machines now. Um, okay, so so you've got like a pump, and you want to get all of your whatever into the reservoir, and you want to get. No, this is a bad pump, but you want I'm to get pump, as I'm, many. I'm pumping. Um, sorry. No. But like, you want to get as many entry points in as possible, um, yeah. and so the en the entry point into for for the general community should be open and inclusive, and then you're going to have a number of smaller entry points for people who don't feel that that. Um, that that main feeder is is inclusive for them. So basically my my response to this idea that safe spaces or marginalized um, spaces are fractal is that they should all be feeding into a, a similar thing. Okay. Um, so what are some what are some methods by which you can make sure that your um, marginalized community spaces are feeding into general population parkour classes and jams one really great thing is for leaders from the dominant privilege group to engage as much as possible with that group so when we talk about um, connections across communities we can't always put the labor of doing that on the marginalized communities um, which is often where it falls um, but it's a women's issue or, or whatnot. So a lot of the labor in doing that, um, in just being, uh, you know, socially open should, I believe, come from people that are, in, you know, in dominant leadership positions or come from the privileged group. Um, and when it comes to People like in my position, if you're running a group that's maybe for um, a marginalized position, I think often all you can do is suggest and, and nudge people towards joining a larger jam um, and or running events that are uh, specifically for bringing those communities together. Um, one thing I would like to say is that uh, sometimes people do get stuck or not stuck, I won't say that, but do remain within that group. And that's not always a bad thing. Um, people, there are a lot of people who train, you know, four days a week or more. And so they've got several, their feelers in several communities. But there are a lot of people that train once a week, if that. There are a lot of people who have a much more um, casual relationship. And those people maybe they want their regular group and that's maybe they have, they've only got one night off from the kids and they want their training session to be something that is productive for them. And if, you know, the women's session or the queer session is the one that suits them, I think that should be fine. Um, 
I don't necessarily think that we need to to mash everybody together. Um, there are mm -hmm. cases where it's not going to be it's not going to be the case, and that's fine, in my opinion. Yeah, you've um, you've made actually what's interesting is you've made me think of an education theory principle, which is called load reduction theory. Um, load reduction theory is super duper simple, which is that you have a finite amount of um, let's say spoons of processing power. Uh, some people like to use spoons yep. in terms of mental health. If you've heard that before, you'll know about spoon theory. But basically, you have a finite amount of attention. And if you are anxious and worried, then um, you have less attention because some of your attention is taken up by anxiety and worry. If there are lots of shiny things around you and it's very distracting, like you're in a public space, you have less attention. If um, you are new and you don't know how anything works, then you have less attention. And so in order to teach, you need to teach someone to the best of your abilities. You need as much of their brain to engage with the task as you can. But if someone is anxious, if someone is worried, if the place is loud, if the place is shiny and different, if it's new and you don't know how to behave, you're worrying about yeah. social niceties, then you have a lot less brain power to work with and therefore you will physically progress less. So one of the interesting ways that fits in with what you're saying is, well, if they are in a place where they feel comfortable surrounded by people that they know and they don't have to be pushed out of their comfort zones if you're trying to teach them maybe eventually they will need pushed out of their comfort zone because you as a coach realize that the world is complicated but not necessarily yeah. um i really like that um but one of the things that you're bringing up right now is it's maybe a, a very different looking community from classic early 2000s multicultural um, neoliberalist ideologies, which is everyone living in harmony together, no matter their race, their creed, their color, whatever. And instead you're talking about something a little bit more bumpy. So do you want to talk to me about what real communities that are diverse might actually look like in practice? Yeah, I, um, I'll just bring up my notes here. I think it's really important that um, we, we kind of embrace the bumpiness that um, it should be, yeah, people are difficult, people are messy. And when we, when we come to think about having um, inclusive and diverse communities, it can be a trap to fall into that, um, to think of diversity as, uh, as a kind of utopic idea of coexisting without conflict. And so instead of, and what I'm, I'm diverting slightly, you can drag me back to the point um, when it's with you. But, but like um, there, there's, a, there's a problem where if, if you posit um, inclusivity and diversity as a, as a um, sort of shining light of Star Trek utopia, anything short of that becomes an abject failure, right? Um, and that, and so I've heard a lot of people uh, talk about inclusivity as this idea that inclusivity is about making everybody happy. You can't make everybody happy, so meh, right? Um, so <laughs> when when you're talking and thinking about these things, it's really important to have a realistic idea of what um, what any given community is, and that should be a kind of um, seething hotbed of both love and a certain amount of conflict. Um, and that 
is good. I think it's important to embrace that diversity does mean there are a number of uh, needs from people that will be different and sometimes those things will come into con conflict. Um, if you have a view where any form of conflict means that diversity has failed, um, what that generally tends to mean is that those conflicts get silenced. Um, you know, the classic, uh, the classic metaphor for that is if you make a space that's welcoming for wolves and for lambs, you end up with a space full of wolves, um, mm -hmm. if you get what I mean. I forget if that was actually your question, though. Um, <laughs> well, I was, I wanted to, I want to explore what a real life, diverse community practically looks like and also try mm. and pin it to what a healthy parkour community might look like so yeah. that idea of conflict i think we can we can maybe take that a little further because there's, there's really two elements to be explored there one let's talk about what you mean a little bit more by, about conflict because um uh there are a lot of different ways of of having conflict resolution some of them are angry and aggressive and chest beating and feel quite violent and yep. some are hey I disagree with you okay let's have a conversation so do you want to talk to me like I was, there's also maybe an idea of de-escalation that would be really handy to sort of build in here so do you want to talk to me because you actually you don't get to the screaming and shouting very often although you build a lot of conflict so let's talk about what conflict might look like and talk me through that idea of what you're trying to do with it Sure. Um, well, first, I, I want to say I'm not a conflict resolution expert, and I have done conflict poorly a lot, <laughs> and that's how I learned about it. Um, so I think <laughs> I think that um, when conflict done well uh, is based in um, respect, basically, and even then it can become somewhat heated but if you if you um don't ever lose sight of uh genuine respect for the people that you're in conflict with it can be much less easy to slip into both recriminations and um any and various forms of violence and so when i talk about conflict what i sort of mean is when the needs of two or more parties cannot be met at the same time in the same way. Um, and I don't necessarily mean um, yelling and screaming um, or, um, you know, any sort of the social. He said, she uh, said. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think if we can think about conflict as various parties trying to get their needs met um, rather than um, so something somebody has to win, then I think in the end, it's better for everybody. Um, and when, when you talk, when you're in like a coaching format, that's what you should be thinking about. How can everybody in my class have their needs met in this particular, um, you know, uh, drill or task or whatever um, and what do I need to change to make sure that those needs aren't coming into conflict or mm -hmm. coming into cross purposes 
Yeah. Does that make sense? So um, I think to add here uh, is that um, psychologically, our most basic understanding of conflict often comes with what, what is called a, a zero-sum conflict. Um, so that is where um, one person wins and one person loses. One person has to win and one person has to lose. Um, so when these circumstances, when conflict rises, most people immediately assume that they are zero-sum conflicts. So I win, you lose, or you win, I lose. And therefore, I'm willing to do anything to win. Sure, I win. Whereas yeah. in actual fact, um, like, um, I think if you sit down and think about conflicts in your life a little bit, uh, I think if we all do, we find that um, almost no conflicts are zero-sum. Um, almost all yeah. conflicts can be felt better of as negotiations between two parties. And when you think yeah. about it in those terms, hopefully we discover that the best way to think is what is that largest amount of value that we can both add to one another's lives at this point in time. Exactly. Um, and so in that, when thinking about it that way, often the, I've found the best way is just to wait. Like your lizard brain often means you may overreact and mm. like just waiting um, can be the best thing to do. <laughs> like, and sometimes, especially as privileged people, that can be a really um, powerful tool. If someone has called you out or someone has said, I think you could improve uh, this for my community, sometimes you have to say, I need a little bit of time because I ha I'm having an emotional response to this, um, you know, or I, you know, I can't, uh, you know, make it about yourself. I can't get over that right now. I need a little bit of time. And that can be a really useful tool, um, especially when resolving conflicts that, that come up around these questions of um, what a marginalized community might need. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of, um, it's an interesting point for us to both maybe sit and think about a little bit and talk about a bit more because um, as someone who comes from privilege and who is very privileged, uh, I, I can sit and have a strong empathy with the position of those who are in privileged positions, who are challenged uh, by marginalized groups and told, hey, you need to, you need to change. Uh, and who ha can and take that visceral response and be like, no. Yeah. Um, yeah. But actually, um, my job in those situations is to make conflict go as smoothly as possible. Someone raises an issue, they feel like they are listened to, they feel like there was, they, they feel safe expounding upon how they feel. My job is to learn as much as I can from that person and then to make a decision. Yep. Um, and it's a very interesting process because um, the cleaner we can make the process of them feeling safe to say things, them feeling listened to, that that bit's the bit that we need to try and avoid the conflict in as much as possible because that will hopefully build better communities because yep. unfortunately for everyone, privileged people have power. That's why they're privileged people. And so in order to make changes, they need to be pushed to change. But yeah. then you're probably going to be able to turn around and tell me how that's not entirely true and something you need to be a bit more forceful. So why don't you maybe take that approach? I, I don't uh, disagree with you. I think that is um, exactly what needs to happen. Uh, and there are a couple of things that I that I add to that is it is a process that privileged people have to go through. It is work. 
Um, and where possible, those people should be supported to do those work, to do that work. Um, the key there being they should be supported by other people of privilege, not by those in the marginalised communities. So you're not asking for more emotional labour from someone who, say, the person who pointed out this issue. You're not forcing them into the role of educating or whatnot. So I, I do think it's important that we um, support people through that where they need it. It's just mm. important to make sure that you're asking the right people for support. Um, and the other thing is, I just want to sort of, it's a, yeah, it's, it's only a tangential thing, but it can be really important to think about how the pathway that people have to make complaints or to bring an, bring an idea to you, because that can be hard and scary, um, mm. and, but you want that information from people. So um, if you don't already know what that pathway is for people, a good idea is to maybe think about what that will be. Are you going to ask people? Um, do you have a way they can do it anonymously? Um, do you have a way that if it, if, what if it's the, the top person in your organization, how can a person bring a complaint against them? Do you know what that mm -hmm. path would be? Um, so yeah, planning that part, like you want to work on that part that you're talking about, but you also want to work mm -hmm. on the part for it as well. Mm -hmm. um, and some of that, of course, is written into the way that we legally have to build up businesses. But another part of it is much more to do with, okay, this is how you get better feedback. And so maybe we can kind of just, just take a step back from that for a second, because it's probably quite a fun question for you to play with, which is, um, why should we create more inclusive communities that engage more marginalized people? This might seem such an obvious one to you, but I'd love to hear you yeah. kind of break that down. Um, yeah, totally. Um, well, for one, like my, um, my experience would be just that I sought out those spaces for myself. And then I, I went on to sort of create them for people that look like me as much as I can, or whose lives were similar to mine, as much as I can. So like, a lot of those spaces are going to be created uh, because people in those communities identify the need, right? Mm -hmm. um, you're going to get better at what you do if you're surrounded by different people mm -hmm. um and that you know that should be the game that should be the ball game there um you may there'll be like a rocky start there and there'll be um you know sometimes when it's really frustrating but if you can get people of more diverse um body shapes sizes strengths uh from other other donor uh, sorry other sports that they did when they were a kid, um, like what if you had someone who was a ballet dancer at a jam? What could you learn from them? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, what if you had someone who was sixty years old and you know did did athletics in the fifties or something? What could you learn from them? And and so really, I think it the reason that you if should have sixty, they wouldn't have been alive in the fifties. Well, whatever. I can't do maths. Um, <laughs> um, you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. What are the like? What are those people? Uh, how can they improve what you do? And mm -hmm. and that's why you should have diverse people around. Yeah. Um, to kind of piggyback on that um, 
one of the there's a really cool study and i'm trying to remember exactly where it's from it's from business um and where they what they did is they so personality types aren't entirely real they're they're a little bit real but not very real mostly they're not real uh, yep. but you can identify people who think differently and who behave differently and who have a very diverse set of ways of thinking by finding people with a diverse set of personality groups and so what they did is they analyzed groups in terms of how diverse a range of personality types the groups had in terms of whether they were thought-led thinking-led um process-led or big idea-led and then what they did is they followed how successful that group was and they tried to break down why the groups were and weren't successful groups who had a similar outlook similar personality type if they were all thinking led um, or if they all had similar ideas disagreed less agreed on decisions more um, started out looking like they were going to be a lot better in terms of making good decisions and making decisions and they all agreed on the decisions but unsurprisingly the groups who were more diverse who had um, more uh, conflict especially early on as they were built uh, and who learned how to overcome that and began making much, much better decisions and ended up having much, much better outcomes over longer periods of time. And the reasoning is very obvious. The more diverse set of opinions you have around you, the more information you can get, the more accurate your, your answer can be. Yeah. It feels very obvious. Yeah. But it's but nice it, to see it, that happening. Yeah, but it's absolutely right. It can be so frustrating in those first stages that people throw in the towel. Um, yeah. And yeah. like, just if it's frustrating and a little bit um, bumpy, as you said, just stay the course, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it works out for the best. Yeah. And always, I like to, for these things, I always like to sort of try and pull the responsibility back to the individual. If there is conflict in your community, then you are part of that conflict. Own it, figure out how to solve it, make it better. If everyone around you, if you think everyone around you is useless, then there's probably something fundamental about you that needs to change. Yeah. Um, Good advice. Um, but let's I kind of let's sort of let's park that conversation because it was wonderful and important. And let's maybe just step um, into a slightly more specific area, one I know that you're very passionate about because you once gave me a book on the subject, uh, which is feminism. So you like to sort actually before we go into feminism, do you want to give a quick overview for how you view feminism as a thing um, and your definition of it so that we can make sure we're all on the same page? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I'm just going to look at my notes here for a sec. Um, so a kind of off-the-shelf definition of feminism would be um, a group of movements or activities that are uh, focused on advocacy for and um, the acquisition of equality of rights between all sexes and genders. Um, and so that's going to include uh, social equality, uh, economic, legal, artistic, um, athletic equalities, um, and, and equalities of opportunities for people of all genders. Um, what I, it's, it's important to note that a lot of people, myself included, will prefer to talk about feminisms in the plural. Um, it is a, a very broad cluster concept. Again, um, all, you know, most feminists will have a, have a similar goal, but they will be, can be wildly different what they 
believe politically. Um, in terms of how I would like to define it right now, um, yes, I would actually like to take a slight left turn and talk about it as a field of inquiry or a field of study that is uh, focused on generating knowledge about the way that gendered power dynamics affect our lives. And from there, um, how can we affect change to make everyone's lives better? So what I mean is that uh, feminism can be a process of examining all of our systems and structures, uh, social, political, economic, uh, etc. How are they uh, impacted by assumptions about gender, by um, rigid or oppressive structures that limit the behavior of people of certain genders, and eventually how we can ad advocate for the dismantling of those oppressive structures. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, this, it makes me feel like I keep coming back to my lovely negative positive freedom idea because um, I kind of, I'm, I'm, I keep pinning ideas to it because I feel like it's explained so many things, but in here, maybe the idea is feminism might used to have been about removing many of the negative, creating negative freedoms, but these days it's yeah. a lot more about examining those much more ephemeral, difficult to understand positive freedoms, distinctions between the genders. So like um why do we live in the 21st century and women are still paid less how does that any make any fucking sense it doesn't and yep. yet it is still true why yep. is it true yeah because until we can understand those whys we can't fix things um and it can probably comes back to a lot of the things we've already talked about um but you in the notes you wrote for this for this interview you wrote something very interesting which is you like to think about parkour as a feminist practice I don't know what that means. I would love to know. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, I'm so excited about this. Um, I Yes, I do. And when I say that, I mean, it's a feminist practice for me. I'm not saying that everybody's parkour is feminist. Um, I'm not, uh, you know, impacting on or, or projecting onto how anybody else views their own parkour. So first off. Um, so... <laughs> When I say that parkour for me is a feminist practice, I'm kind of thinking in, the, in that term, in those terms of uh, feminism as a way to generate knowledge. And I know this has come up in some of your other um, interviews. What I kind of want to, again, tangent off a bit towards is this um, differences between different types of knowledge. And so you've got um, knowledge that can be written down, knowledge, things that can be expressed in language. And often in the Western canon, of it especially, if something can be written down, it kind of gets um, uh, valorized more as proper knowledge. But we all know it's really important to have a sort of visceral or embodied knowledge. Um, that, that's often what parkour is about. It's about understanding in a way that you can't write down what your own body can do who you are as a person what the city around you is like um, and how all of those things interact so when I talk about my parkour as a feminist practice what I'm talking about is generating um, embodied and visceral knowledge about the way that I interact with the city and the world around me um, 
as a woman. <laughs> Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, um, I'm kind of I'm interested in that idea of things that can't be written down because the way that I tend to describe that um, is things that we don't yet have good words for. But maybe you actually want to make a bit of a longer point here, so instead of opening it to you, are you? Do you feel like this sort of more visceral understanding can't be written down or that we don't presently have a language in which to write it down in? Because those are different things. Yeah, and we're getting we're getting neck deep in um, post-structuralism now, bud. Um, I don't actually think it can. Um, I think we can approximate. Um, and I think a lot of excellent... Um, uh, you know, both literature and um, theory has been written doing attempting to do just that. You know, like um, the Poetics of Space by Bachelard, or um, I'm struggling to think of the Michelle Serra book, um, but that will come back to me. Um, but I think it, it is important to, I think if you are conceptualizing knowledge as something that uh, we can't write down yet. What that actually does is, is um, canonize or privilege that sort of knowledge over the embodied knowledge. It's just not quite there yet. Um, and I would actually think it's really important to know and understand that um, visceral or embodied knowledge is just as important and just as rigorous as knowledge that you can write down and I think that can become a sort of political point as well, because coming back to marginalized communities, they often ha don't have the same access to um, academia as white people. So they um, don't have the same access to that language. And, and if you don't, um, if you consider that words are a better expression of human thought, than other, other forms of language. It is, in fact, probably a little bit racist, a little bit sexist. Um, You've actually jumped out of post-structuralism and dived into <laughs> South American neo-Marxism. I have noticed. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of where I stand on the, um, you know, writing as, as a form of knowledge thing. Okay, yeah, so like, I think um, maybe we can explore what we mean a little bit more about by visceral knowledge, you sort of talked about it in terms of um, the the way we move and the experience we have of life, and all those elements that are a little bit trickier for us to really pin down. Um, and then, interestingly, what you did is you you started referencing um, art, and maybe it's that's kind of we can can keep it into art here because, like, describing how art makes us feel is this entire thing in itself, and those those associations and ideas that we associate with how we feel that we struggle to um, put into words, are, are they, is this the world that you're trying to, um, it's, it's a dark matter game, it's show, show <laughs> without actually being able to talk about. Yeah, I think um, absolutely. And I think that um, when, when I say that those two forms of knowledge, and there are other forms of knowledge as well, but those two are not, one is not better than the other. We can also um, really feel 
we can value the the translations that we are able to make between those two and coming back to like the um you know as a feminist practice what i would say is that i can talk for a long time if you don't stop me about how any given urban space is um generally designed for able-bodied young uh white men um generally and I can say that in in numbers of words people have written books about it and you can understand that in words but it is once you combine that sort of um political written down knowledge with visceral knowledge that you gain from stuff like um you know slightly transgressive um street sports like parkour once you combine those two they they multiply um in my opinion um so that again i've forgotten the question but um it is important that we do even though direct translations between types of knowledge are impossible it's really important and valuable to try yeah i am um... so when people talk about those things uh and they make those statements they're making it they're making often what we do we see the way that people build language is that they have basic assumptions that are sort of definitions of who they are it's very value-led and they then build lots of flowery language in order to um in order to so this is we're back in structuralism um in order to sort of um rationalize why they feel that way so like two people could have differing opinions and they could see the same words written down on a page and they can come to two differing opinions even though they see the same evidence and one of the reasons for that of course is that our brains are tribal and we build these things and we um, come to conclusions that rationalize and all of these things for me at least make it really clear that um, you cannot necessarily judge your lived experience as truth while still yeah. knowing that there are universal truths out there that are generally true with to such a given value of truth, there's not much point arguing about them. Yeah. Like there's yeah. like, I understand that we can argue about anything, but you know, there, there's stuff where the evidence is piled high enough now that we can leave it alone. Um, yeah. But there's still huge amounts that we can argue and yeah. talk about and rationalize. And um, so maybe let's, let's pull all those ideas back together a second and just maybe talk about um, a little bit of problem solving um let's say that you are a young community leader who wants to um bring different people into their community they've noticed that there may be there may be a little bit older now they've been doing parkour for quite a while they realize that their community is just full of young boys jumping about and they want to reach out to a wider audience, but no matter what they do, they just can't get girls to stick to the classes. They can't get people from differing backgrounds. They don't appear to be getting them through the door, never mind keeping them. Uh, what would be your first, like, ports of call things that they should really begin thinking about? Yeah, uh, well, one of them is um, other numbers on your side. And in a lot of really small communities, they very well may not be. So sometimes, uh, you know, there might not be enough of a, if you're, if you're in a small town, um, maybe you aren't going to get those people into a parkour class. 
um, you're not going to get diverse people into a class that is branded under that umbrella. So sometimes if you think about um, what else you can do, you could either go to where they are, maybe they're, they're part of an existing movement community, and maybe you want to do a, um, like a skill swap with the teacher. If you've got a lot of young girls in your community that are in ballet or dance class, maybe you want to think about doing, uh, stepping a little bit into their world. Go to where they are, um, yeah. basically. That's a really big thing is that you need to, rather than gesturing people over, you need to, to start from where they are. And mm -hmm. if that means, you know, uh, calling it movement instead of parkour for a bit or um, going into a dance class and doing a, a collaboration, those are possibilities as well. So, um and, and also a really cool piece just here just to interrupt and put in you'll feel uncomfortable doing these things and that's okay yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> i think yeah um bang it bang on uh sorry and that's my dogs dog. <laughs> um yeah it's absolutely true that it will feel uncomfortable and that's sort of the approximate that's an approximation of what those people are going to feel coming to your class and so that means that that discomfort is actually you putting yourself in a in a in an empathetic position to understand why what what they're feeling the first time they step through into your class basically yeah which is a really cool thing for you as a coach to have because it helps you empathize i really like that um yeah. and maybe a maybe one final one which is um how do you want parkour companies and parkour institutions to better represent women in parkour? What, what do you think that they're doing wrong that you'd love to see done better? Do you want to see more women in authority positions? Do you want to see better photos of women? Do you want to see um, photos of women in a different manner? Do you want to see different videos? How do you want that representation to exist? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is to um, recognize that there are loads of, of companies and organizations that are doing wonderful things. Um, it hurts me to have to say it well you can hear but access is probably one of them um and we <laughs> and so so it is important to recognize people are doing great things um and you know it is kind of a combination of all of the things that you've um that you've said uh as well as you know trying to avoid um, any major missteps that people like, you know, Storo or whatnot are making in their, um, in their lookbooks and whatnot. But um, what, <laughs> what I would want is, uh, yeah, visible uh, leadership from a variety of genders without pushing people into leadership just because they're, they're of a, a minority gender, which is, can be a tricky line to walk. Um, as well as I think a really important thing can be especially for attracting more people to um, to the discipline is diversity in what we represent and again I'm circling back to social media that's just the most obvious one but it can be really important to share diverse bodies in motion um, by photography but also diverse levels um as well you don't want to be 
posting only huge jumps because that can be intimidating to some people. So as well as, and also older people and, you know, queer people and people of color, you know, representation is the first step to people imagining themselves in that position. And that's really important. Um, and from my perspective, as someone who's, um, someone who I think we can all agree has gone from being pretty poor at this to I think getting the hang of it now. Um, one thing that really changed my outlook in life was um, just a general acceptance that my, my intuition is wrong. <laughs> um, this is a really fun one to kind of like build out and talk about a little bit but when I think about what is best for my students it is easiest the easiest groove for me is to create what is easiest for me and people like me mm -hmm. and it is harder to think about people who are different from me and the more different they are for me and the less contact I have with their communities the harder it is for me to the point where you find people living very different lives the advertising that would work for them is so different from what I would look at that if I looked at my own advertising, I would be turned off by it. Yeah, because, exactly. like, because people are diverse and different. And so I find it really interesting that um, like, just as purely as a business, as like an economic measure, like the better you get at reaching diverse groups, then they have, like, they have money too, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and it's important to obviously be genuine and compassionate about that, um, both because you should be genuine and compassionate to be a human person, but also because people can smell it from a mile off if you are um, just chasing numbers. Um, so, yeah, uh, compassion and authenticity are what's going to get you there. Um, and just throwing, throwing photos up isn't. Yeah. Cool. So why don't, um, can you give me a few books or a few references or a few websites or whatever you want to kind of promote as things that uh, people who are interested in the subject might want to read? Uh, interesting authors, um, good podcast recommendations, whatever you really feel is the best resource to take this conversation further. Yeah, amazing. Um, so I've written down a couple. Um, the first couple of names are the big ones in black feminism um, and particularly now in what we see happening across the world um, if you are interested in taking first steps in the field of study biz feminism black voices are, are very are vitally important um, feminism has come under a lot of criticism and rightly so for centering white voices so I'd recommend um, that book that I got for you feminism is for everybody by bell hooks Everything by Bell Hooks. Um, That's not the one you got for me. Oh, it's not? No. Oh, oh, no I gave it, it away. You know, I gave it away to someone else who I felt needed it. Uh, oh, well, I think it was called Feminism and Introduction. Okay, well, I'll get you Feminism is for Everybody then. Um, <laughs> and, um, and also Bell Hooks has a, has a book called Teaching to Transgress, which is about um, teaching in an educational format, but um, I think has a lot of meat on the bones for parkour coaches. So that's a good recommendation. Um, Audrey Lord, Audra Lord, I'm sorry. Um, 
is a fantastic writer. So, uh, you know, the big one there would be age, race, class and sex, women redefining difference. So that's a fantastic one. Uh, there's a couple of books, one coming out in a couple of months, I think, called Feminist City um, by a geographer, feminist geographer called Kern, I believe. I haven't written down the name. Um, that's also um, a really good one. Um, if you are, uh, I think also feminism generally, um, and all forms of scholarship often have quite a lot of links to the places where they come from. So I'd recommend looking up the feminist thinkers from your town, uh, for country, um, as a good place to start. And what else have I got written down? Um, also, there's a really long and um, wonderful history of feminist novel writers and other arts of all kinds. So if you're not a theory person, if you don't like sitting down and reading a um, a book on critical theory, which is, is fine. It's boring as fuck sometimes. Sorry. Um, <laughs> you read it, read novels, read Ursula Le Guin or Dor Doris, Doris Lessing or um, Mary Shelley. You know, that is a really- you Go all the way back to Simone de Beauvoir if you want her fiction. Yeah, straight. exactly. There you go, the blood of others, have a crack. Um, and so that can be a really great, because often a lot of what we respond to as people is stories. So if you search out stories and narratives that center people that are different to you or are in the voices of people that are different for you, that like blows your mind, yeah? Yeah, um, so because you gave us so many interesting novels, would you, once we finish, just go to the Facebook live feed and just drop the names of those books into the feed so people can go and look for them? Done, yes. Awesome. Uh, we're going to finish off there. Cal, thank you so much for your time. I know it is late in Melbourne, um, but it has been a real pleasure, as always, talking with you. Uh, we didn't even argue that much. We didn't. No, we should, we should do this again. All right. Oh. Uh, thank you for your time. <laughs> Thanks so much, Hedge.